0: Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. Okay, so last week, uh, we started a new message series, 1 Samuel 1 and 2. Um, we got through the first, uh, the message series is First Samuel. We got through the first two chapters, and the thing that stood out to us was the way the story is setting the stage for what's happening in Israel. And we talked about how the story is about a community of people, and the community of people all have names. They're individuals. They're, they're, they're real people. But these real people According to the story, they have a way of kind of personifying the things that are happening in the life of the community. And so there may be just one individual that's a part of the community, but the thing that's happening in the life of this individual tells us a lot about the condition of the community. And so as we study through this book, we're going to learn lots of names. We're going to learn lots about God working in the midst of community. And one of the first things that we learn from the very beginning of the book is that this community is not doing well. It is barren. The Word of God is not moving. He's not speaking. And we find out why, because the people who are supposed to be stewarding the Word of God, the priests, they are wicked men. They're taking advantage of the people. They're teaching the wrong things. They're stealing. They're having inappropriate relationships with the women who are serving at the uh, the tabernacle. And then we have this woman named Hannah. And she steps onto the scene and we see that she's barren. She can't give any life. She can't produce any fruit. And she becomes this little picture of the people of God. She's barren. The priesthood is barren. The whole land is barren. And she gets on her face and she starts praying and she says, I wanna set my mind against the way that things are and I want things to change. And so in the middle of this story that starts off as barrenness and sadness, there's this little ray of hope that God is working. And how is he working? He's working to end the priesthood, this wicked priesthood, and he's working to end the barrenness. And both of these tasks are going to be accomplished by one man named Samuel. Now, before we get into the message today, 1 Samuel 3, I want to to remind you that Samuel, this character, is a foreshadow of Jesus. And the reason why I wanna say that is because if we start reading that this guy is known for um, uh, fulfilling God's desires to end the wicked priesthood and to end the barrenness, then we kind of start righteously feeling inside of ourselves, well, I wanna be a Samuel. Doggone it, I wanna end some wickedness. No, just me? I want to end some unrighteousness in this land. I just want to remind you before we get into this text, you aren't Samuel. Samuel is a foreshadow of Jesus. Now, as we're reading the story, we can walk alongside these characters, we can make applications and draw understanding um, and things that would apply to our life from this text, but we have to remember that we are not the hero of God's story. The hero of God's story is God. We are characters in his story and he takes great joy in asking us to participate in his story, but you can't forget that this is his story, not your story. Okay? That's the disclaimer before you get into it. Somebody running out here thinking, man, I'm a, I've got a Samuel ministry. No, you don't. <laughs> oh, let's read it. First Samuel chapter 3. I'm going to read a little bit and then we'll talk a little bit. This will be kind of odd. I'm only going to read the first verse and then reflect because the first verse sets the tone for the rest. So let's get into it. It says, um, this is First Samuel 3.1. It says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. So right at the beginning, first verse, the author sets the stage about what is about to take place. And the way he's setting it is profound because he makes two important declarations. One is that Samuel is currently ministering under Eli. Now, we have already established in the previous chapters that Eli wasn't a very good leader. He had a hard time telling his boys the things that they needed to hear. He had a really difficult time doing what needed to be done in removing his boys from leadership when they were functioning under wickedness. But God calls Samuel to grow up under Eli, and this idea, this this application that that. God sometimes likes training strong leaders by giving them weak leaders to serve under is going to be a theme that's going to run through this entire book. As we start getting into, into David and Saul, you're going to see this theme over and over and over. David, how do you become a good king? You study under a wicked king. Samuel, how to become a good priest? You watch the cues of a, a, um, a dysfunctional priest, which is really good for us. It's great news for us, because a lot of us are thinking, like, I could really reach my potential if I just had a different boss. Well, biblically, that's not really how it always works. The invitation is for you to consider that what needs to happen is not for your circumstances to change, but for you to see how God is working in those current circumstances. So that's the first thing that he says that samuel was ministering to the lord in the presence of eli and then we're told that the word of the lord was rare in those days there was no frequent vision now this is interesting to me when i read that the word of the lord was rare in those days i'm asking myself how is the word of the lord rare didn't they have the torah they had the first five books of the bible we're told that moses wrote them this is way after moses So there was written text somewhere where somebody could sit down and read the Word of God. So how is it that the Word of the Lord was rare? The Word of the Lord was rare, obviously, because He was not speaking in those days, but it was rare because God has this way of bringing spiritual barrenness as a punishment when His people indulge in sin. Let me give you an example, this, is, uh, this won't take place until many years in the future of Israel, but a prophet named Amos um, in 811 declares the word of the Lord and he says this, this is a, a future time period in Israel, but it's also present in this time period. The prophet says this, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread or a thirst of water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. So when you ask yourself, how does the word of God become rare when he speaks regularly and it's written in a form that we can go read, how does that happen? It's because the people of God get to a place where sin hardens their heart and they don't want to hear the word of the Lord. They decide, okay, God, that's what you said, but I don't like that, and so I'm going to do something different. What that is a setting yourself against God, and it hardens your heart to the things of God. It's almost like this. Every time you give in to sin and say yes to it, it's harder to say no the next time. But, the, but every time you say no to those temptations, guess what? It gets easier to say no the next time. Every time you give yourself over to the sin that so easily entangles and, and tempts your flesh, It gets harder to say no to it the next time, and your heart becomes a little bit harder. And what we're told in the life of Israel is that one of the things God did to his people when that happened was he would send a famine of his word. Okay, you want to get hard? Your heart is going to grow hard against me. You don't want to hear what I have to say. Then okay, then I'm going to add to that, and I'm going to send a famine in the land so that you can't actually hear. You can't actually see. I'm going to match what you're doing in your own life by pouring some God on top of that. And it's going to be even harder to hear and to see. And this is what we're seeing in this text. God is responding to the famine. God is answering the wickedness of the priests with a famine and nobody has eyes to see or ears to hear and you see this today because eventually when a church or a group of believers decide in their minds that they know better than God and set themselves against God their heart starts to grow hard towards him and in a way he seems to send a famine into the land that that if they don't do something about that in repentance then the problem only gets worse And then pretty soon, the people of God are swimming in podcasts and commentaries and entire Christian bookstores, and nobody can hear and nobody can see. Does that sound familiar? there is no shortage of content you have more you have access to more information in your pocket than any person in human history and we still can't find the way to hear or really see that's because god is up to something he's answering our wickedness with a famine you want that i'm going to see i'm going to let you see how far that goes but the question is, well, ah, oh, that, that kind of that seems unfair, puts us at an unfair advantage. Well, let's go back to the first step at where it started. We're told in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, For but just as many times as God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But there's good news, there is a way out of this cycle where the people of God can't see and can't hear because their hearts are so hard. How do you get out of that? Hannah shows us, you pray. Which is interesting because that's not how we would solve it. We would solve it with just diving into the content. If I can't see, then I'm gonna keep reading until my vision comes back. But that's not biblically how it works. Biblically how famines end is through prayer. Humble people get on their face and they acknowledge that the predicament that they have gotten themselves in has been increased because of the glory of God and the only person who can fix God's situations is God himself. God, end this famine that we started and you poured out on our land. We want to hear you again. And all of a sudden, people start hearing again. And that's where we get into in verse 2. 1 Samuel 3.2, it says, at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. Now, that's interesting. As we started the study today, I told you that there were individual characters that were representing things of the entire community. Now you've got the head of the priesthood leadership. What is he showing us? That the priesthood had no vision and they couldn't see. He was lying down in his own place. You've got Eli over here laying down in his own place, and you've got the lamp of God, verse three, had not yet gone out in the tabernacle, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Mm, Interesting, right? You've got the leader, current leader, current wicked leader, sleeping in his own house, can't see very well. Then you've got the next generation of leadership. Where are they hanging out? Right in front of the ark. Hanging out right in front of, uh, of, of the candlestick tending to the things of God. Verse 4, then the Lord called to Samuel. He said, here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, he, here I am, for, for you called me. But he said, I, I did not call you. Lie down again. So he went and laid down again. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. But he said, I not I didn't call you, my son, go lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. That's important, we'll come back to it. But we're told that the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time and he rose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy Okay, finally, congratulations, Eli, third time. So Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and if he calls you, say to him, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and laid down in his place, and the Lord came. What does it say that he did? The word of the Lord stood, calling as other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, speak, for your servant hears, and the Lord said to Samuel, behold. I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And that word tingle is in almost every English English translation, but it doesn't really capture what that word means. That word tingle is the same word that we would use to describe the ringing in our ears when something like explosive goes on around us. It is unsettling, it is a trembling The Lord says I'm about to do something and it's gonna put ringing in the ears of the people. No one's gonna see this one coming. Verse 12, on that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to the end and I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel laid down until morning, and he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli." Let's pause right there. So God speaks to Samuel four times. The first three times, Samuel is unfamiliar with what he's hearing, so he goes to his leadership. He thinks that Eli is calling for him, and so he's submitting to that leadership. And Eli doesn't really get it until the third time. And in the third time, the Lord tells him, I want you to go back. And when you hear him calling your name again, I want you to respond to him. Speak for your servant hears. And the fourth time in verse 10, we're told that the Lord stood before Samuel and spoke. Now I want us to take note of the few things that this text is revealing to us about this specific encounter. First, I want you to see how patient God is with Samuel learning to hear his voice. He's not sitting there with a stopwatch over his head saying, boy, you better get it this time. I'm only gonna say, I'm I'm only gonna call your name one more time. No, he calls his name four times. He's patient because he wants, God wants his people to learn what his voice sounds like which is fascinating because that hasn't changed. God still wants you to understand what his voice sounds like. God speaks to you through his word. When you're reading the Bible, that thing that happens where it just feels like that simple sentence that you've read 10 times just for whatever reason seems to jump out of the page and just grab you, that's God speaking through his word. That's God getting your attention. That's him speaking through his word. But he doesn't just speak through his word. He speaks through lots of things. He speaks through his leaders. For example, right now on a Sunday morning while I'm teaching, I'm, I've put together some notes off of the text that we've studied, and I don't know all of your individual specific situations, but without fail, I'll be teaching through this. And one little side point that I make, it's not really even a thing that we're talking about. It's just a, it's a, it's just a fleeting comment I made. that. Sticks in your gut and you can't let it go, and it's the thing you think about all week long. That's God speaking to you through me. God speaks through people. You might hear your father say some wisdom, and you're like, God, that, that's really good. And your father standing by, going, like, That was actually pretty good. I don't, <laughs> I don't normally talk like that. That's God. God speaking through your father. God also speaks in your heart in that still small voice. Sometimes when you're sitting there praying, you, you have this thought run through your mind. You're like, oh, that's weird. I, that doesn't sound like something I would think. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. Now, here's something important I need to comment on. How do you know the difference between just your thoughts and the Lord speaking to you in, in, in your mind through your spirit? You tune your ear to what his voice sounds like so you stop thinking that all of your thoughts are God's thoughts. I was having a conversation with one of my sons the other day, and we were talking about this very thing, and I asked him, I said, if we were in Target and you were on the other side of the store and I called out your name, and I just said your name as loud as I could, do you think you could tell if it was me calling your name or some stranger? He's like, yeah. I said, well, how, do you, how would you know that? He's like, because I know what your voice sounds like. I've heard it, that's it. You sharpen what God's voice sounds like through his word because this isn't going to go wrong. So you listen to what he sounds like, the way he talks, when you read this word. And then you let it sharpen in hearing his word come out of the mouth of other people. And you're like, yeah, that does sound like, that does sound like this. Because when it doesn't, you're like, that's not him. You're way off, man. How do I know, how do I know you're off? Because you're saying God told you, because, because God wouldn't speak like that. And when, so, so, so when you're listening to your, and you're on prayer time, you're like, Lord, speak to me, and you know, I'm praying on this thing, like, what am I supposed to do? How do I know this direction? And, and he speaks to you um, in, uh, it's almost like a thought comes in your mind, or he speaks to you in your heart. You're like, okay, well, how do I know that's actually God? You weigh that against this. If that thought that, God, that you think God speaks doesn't line up with this word, it ain't him, ignore it. Because the enemy has a way of whispering into your ear too and trying to distract you. And not every thought you had is from God even when you think. That's from God. So how do you know? What, what, like What's your litmus test? This word. And this is what it's telling us, that God is patient in us learning how to hear his voice through his word, through other people, in private prayer time. But the other thing that's speaking to us is that God wants to reveal Jesus to us. And man, that's crazy because this is the Old Testament. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 7, it says the word of the Lord was not revealed in those days. And then verse 11, it said that the word of the Lord came and stood before him. The Lord came and stood before uh, Samuel. This isn't the the, the first time that we see the word of the Lord standing before people. Jeremiah 1.9 tells us that when the Lord called Jeremiah into uh, ministry, the word of the Lord stood before him. And then we're told the word of the Lord reached out and touched his lips. Words can't touch your lips. Words can't stand before you. So what we're seeing here is the Word of the Lord is a way to describe God be, embody, being embodied right in front of us in the Old Testament. Now that's a fascinating idea, the idea that the Word of the Lord could stand before us. Is that anywhere else in Scripture? It is. John chapter one. The word. The Word was in the beginning. The word was with God. The word was with uh, the word was God. The word was with God. The word took on flesh and dwelt among us. When we're reading through the Old Testament and we come across a text like this, that the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed. Yes, that is talking about. Samuel being able to understand and discern what he hears as the word of the Lord. But the word of the Lord is not just God's voice. The word of the Lord is Jesus. That's what John 1 tells us. And so when you're looking through this, you're like, oh man, so Jesus, he didn't just show up on the scene when he was born. No, he's eternal. He's been around the whole time. He was present at creation. His word actually spoke creation into existence. But the other thing that stands out to me is that God wants us to proclaim his plans. And this is what's really fascinating. God is patient with us learning to hear his voice and he wants to reveal himself to us. But why? What's the end goal? Is it so you can get butterflies in your tummy and Holy Ghost goosebumps? and Like, oh man, I know the Lord and I know what he sounds like. No. The end goal is so that you can start showing others what his word is to go out and share his word. Our message that we're supposed to be sharing is called the gospel message. But the message that, that Jesus, the word of the Lord expected Samuel to share was a message of destruction for the house of Eli. And this is why I gave you that disclaimer at the beginning because if you're like, oh man, I'm, I got a Samuel ministry, man. Like, I'm here to preach destruction on the house of, and you just fill in the blank with whoever you feel like God is telling you at that day. No, no, you've got a message. The message is the gospel. The message is reconciliation. The message is turn from your sin and come to Jesus. That's the message. And the question here is, is Samuel going to be a better prophet than Eli was? Eli had a message. He knew what he was supposed to do with his boys, but he didn't do it. He was a weak leader, and he couldn't say the hard things that needed to be said. Will Samuel follow in that? Um, same uh, reputation? Will he cower at the hard things that need to be said? Or will he stand up in boldness, even though he's afraid, and say the truth? First Samuel 3 16. It says, But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. I can imagine Samuel's like, Yes, yeah, sir. Give me the, the details. I want to know everything what did the Lord say? Now this is a loaded question because Samuel or Eli knows what, what the Lord said. Eli has already been told what the Lord thinks about him and his boys from the unnamed prophet in chapter two. But Eli's trying to teach Samuel the importance of being a better man than he is. I want you to say it even though it's hard. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. Yeah, good job Samuel. And he said, it is the Lord... This is what Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what, he seems good to, what seems good to him. So Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of, the word, of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, which is a figure of speech that means all of Israel, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And look at this. The Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Samuel heard it the first time. He was obedient and Jesus, before he was incarnated as Jesus, continued to appear to Samuel. That's not the first time Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in the Old Testament in uh, Genesis 9, I think, where he's having a conversation with Abraham. How oh, can gonna be nine, It's got to be after 11. I can't remember. But he appears to, to uh, uh, Abraham and he's having this conversation about destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and he appears with two angels. And he says to him, so, uh, they actually start having like a bargain, like, uh, so Lord, how many, how many righteous people would need to be in that city before you destroyed it? And we're told that in that conversation, like they sat, they had a meal, they ate together. Look, Jesus, he's all in this book. You don't have to get to Matthew and go forward to see Jesus. He has been revealing himself all through Israel, through the entire Bible, so much so that the day he raises from the dead, he's walking down the Emmaus Road with his disciples, and we're told that he starts, that he starts teaching with them man, to be there at that moment. He starts teaching with them and starts with the law and the prophets and walks through how all things to the Old Testament pointed towards Jesus. Our Lord is everywhere in here. And Samuel sees it, and Samuel's transformed by it. So as we finish chapter three, what we're seeing is that Samuel becomes faithful to God's message, and in response, the word continues to reveal himself at Shiloh, and Samuel develops a reputation for the prophet. Now, we're about to get into chapter four, and this is gonna seem disconnected because Samuel's gonna kind of disappear. Eli's gonna kind of disappear. Samuel's not mentioned in this story anymore, but I want you to understand that these chapters are connected, As we get into 4, it's not like something that just, uh, like it's a rabbit trail we're going to chase about the ark. What we're reading in 4 is connected to 3 and 2 because 4 is how God fulfilled His Word from 2 and 3. And this is going to send ringing in the ears of the people because the way God is going to accomplish His plans You remember remember what he spoke? He said, I'm going to take out Hophni and Phinehas. I'm going to kill your boys and end your lineage. That's what's going to happen. And chapter 4 tells us how that happens. So let's get into it. 1 Samuel 4 verse 1. It says, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And the Philistines grew up in the, I know what you're thinking, you're like, God, I wish I had a map. (laughs) Let me finish. (laughs) The Philistines drew up the line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. All right, so Israel goes out to battle. They don't do so hot. 4,000 Israelites die. the Philistines were like, hey, we, we kind of took, we, we, we took care of some business. Verse three, and when the people came back to the camp, the elder of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The Lord is supposed to be fighting for us. So it's not really the Philistines that beat us, it's the Lord. Why did the Lord defeat us? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come out among us. Now it's interesting that it, also in some translations is translated as he, which reveals to us their motivation that he may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. I'll, I'll talk about what they're thinking there in a second. Verse four, so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there because they're the ones supposed to be carrying the ark. Oh man, are your ears starting to ring? God's up to something. And as soon as the ark of the covenant carried by these two boys came into the camp. Israel, man, they gave a mighty shout, so the earth resounded. Probably two miles away is where the Philistines were when they heard all the shouting. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. Oh, no, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Why did they think Israel was serving multiple gods? Because Israel was serving multiple gods. They were so unfaithful in their covenant that the surrounding nations thought they were polytheistic. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Do you see the importance of the church preaching the right gospel so the world doesn't think wrong theology about who we serve? Take courage and be men, O Philistines. Let us become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated. And they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell that day. That's a lot of guys. Even in modern terms, that's a lot of death on one battlefield. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they died. Now this story only makes sense against the background of chapters two and three. In 1 Samuel 2, 34, a man of God came and prophesied to Eli, your boys are going to die and your lineage is going to end. God spoke the same thing to Samuel in the last chapter, 1 Samuel 3, 11 through 12, that Eli's lineage is going to end and that his boys are going to die. So how did God accomplish his word? This battle, if you'll throw the map up on the screen. What we're looking at here is a uh, a map of Israel. You've got the Dead Sea over here, Mediterranean Sea. This is all the land of Israel. And what you see with the red line is, uh, first up here, this is Shiloh. Shiloh's up on the top right. Shiloh was the city where the tabernacle was set up. That's where the ark was. Ebenezer was where they advanced the tabernacle up for the battle. Now all these blue lines, these are the lines of the Philistines coming up to fight. The Philistines had settled on the west side of Israel. And when the people of God, uh, the Israelites came into the land, they settled mostly over here on the east side. And under the conquest of Joshua, they took out most of the foreign nations and tribes uh, uh, over here on this area, but they didn't push too far into the Philistine area. And you still have cities like Gaza, Eshkelon, Ashdod, Gath, Akron, Aphek. These are all Philistine cities. Does gas sound familiar? That's where Goliath was from. So these are all Philistine cities, and when war breaks out, every city sends their strongest men of the Philistines up these supply lines to Aphek, and what you have at the beginning of four is all the Philistine army over here in Aphek ready to fight, and the uh, the Israeli army over here in Ebenezer ready to fight. The first battle takes place halfway between right in here, And 4,000 men died on that first day. And after the first day, the Israelites go back and they're like, man, that wasn't good. You know what we need? We need the ark. Why would they say we need the ark? Because deep down in their souls, they believed that they could manipulate God into giving them a victory. How did it work in their minds? They knew that the ark was God's furniture. It was his symbol of his presence on earth. So if we bring his furniture out to the battle, surely God's not going to let his name be profaned among the nations. He will have to fight for us if we bring his stuff out. Just pure, raw manipulation. What they weren't taking into account is the fact that God had already decreed that the two boys who would be carrying the ark, they were sentenced to death and so in doing the thing that they thought would manipulate God into accomplishing their plans they actually fell right into the trap of God accomplishing his own plans and man is that not how most of our lives function on a daily basis so Hophni and Phinehas they bring the ark into battle they die the ark is stolen and this is why we're told that what God was going to do was going to send a ringing or a tingle in the ears of the people because God was faithful to his word, but in the most unexpected way. They were convinced God would be faithful to his word about him being there for his people, but God was faithful to his word about himself and his own name. And he said this was gonna happen, and it was gonna happen. So, the two big lessons from this beginning part of this chapter is that you cannot manipulate God into joining your team or bending to your worldview. I'll say that again. You cannot manipulate God into bending to your team or thinking your way with some clever argument or thinking that because you have um, uh, some status symbol or some reputation that God's name is attached to that somehow he will bless whatever thing you want to do and bend and reform and reshape him into your own image. That's not how he works. And the other thing that this text teaches us is that God will happily disappoint you to teach you about the kind of God He really is. He has no problem letting you down if it means on the other side of it you will see who He really is. Let's go to verse 12. says, This is the man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn with dirt on his head. And when he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. Isn't that fascinating that that's what his heart trembled? Not for his boys because he knew what was coming for his boys, but he was unsure about the ark And he trembled for that. And when the man came to the city and told the news, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the sounds of the cry, he said, what is this uproar? And the men hurried and came and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so they could not see. The man said to Eli, I'm the one who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, well, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's also been a great defeat among the people. And your sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And as soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backwards off from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died because the man was old and heavy. (laughs) It's important. (laughs) Why is it important? Because it it teaches us that he was probably reaping the benefits of his son stealing the offerings from the people who brought the meat. Maybe he wasn't doing it, but he was complicit in it. He had judged Israel for 40 years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant. She was about to give birth and when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, do not, do not be afraid, for you have born a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed from Israel. That's what Ichabod means, the glory has departed because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. Now news of this tragedy strikes back to Israel. We find that Eli is shocked. He falls out of the sea, he dies. Phineas' wife goes into labor. But what's important about Phineas' wife in the story is that she becomes the perfect personification for how visionless this land is. See, it's not just Eli and the leadership, it's the people too. She says, Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed because he took the ark. But that's not actually what happened. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 3 that the word of the Lord was already rare and there were no visions. The glory of the Lord did not depart when the ark was taken. The glory of the Lord had already departed. The taking of the ark revealed the thing that had already been true, but nobody had the vision for, which is fascinating because it it, it begs the question, what things are currently true about our life that we are completely ignorant to, that it would take some kind of tragedy, if you will, to wake us up to the reality that's been along, that has been uh, real in our life all along. What does the Lord need to disappoint you with in order to seize your attention and get you to wake up to the way things really are and get you out of this dream state that that things are fine? The way I'm living is fine. It's not fine. God forbid the Lord has to find a way to wake you up to that. There's There's a different way to stop being spiritually blind and living in a a land of famine, and that's to pray and ask the Lord, God, show me where I'm blind. Show me where I can't hear. Show, Show me where my heart is hard. God, don't send tragedy to wake me up. I'm happy to wake up now. Those are crazy prayers, But as we close today, I want to reflect on the things that have jumped out from us from chapter three and four. First, I started with God being the hero of his own story, and he's inviting us to participate. But participation doesn't always look like what we think it should. Participation doesn't look like manipulation or changing God's mind or his image or his message. That's not participating in the things of God. Participating looks like prayerful consideration of asking the Lord to end the spiritual drought that is in our lives, in our family lives, and in our churches. And if you don't think that there's a spiritual drought in the church of God right now, you're exactly who I'm talking to. If you're looking across the landscape, you're like, I don't know, things look pretty good. You got to fall on your face and start praying because things are not pretty good. there are many churches where the word of the Lord is rare and vision is not heard. And I'll go even a step deeper. There are many houses filled with believers that go to church every week and in that house, the word of the Lord is rare and there is no vision. And even in individual lives and some of you today, if you were honest with yourself, the word of the Lord has been pretty rare and there is no vision, and I would argue that's the reason why you feel like a hamster just in a cage spinning your wheel and not getting anywhere, because you need to be spending more time on your face in prayer asking the God who changes things than to try and work up the courage and power to change things on your own. The Lord is currently asking you to participate by prayer and participate by getting out and sharing his message, even when it's inconvenient. But the thing that strikes me the most is a a quote I came across this week. This is the last thing I want on your mind before we leave. The quote is this, that word Ichabod means the glory has departed. Could Ichabod be justly written over many church sanctuaries today? The Lord wants you to participate. He wants you to learn His voice. But if you are too busy trying to pad your pocketbook and take advantage of the Lord and use His name to get your way or build your reputation in society, if you're using His name as a moral high ground to put other people in their place, you're missing what He's inviting you to participate in. That's not the message He's wanting you to share. The message is the gospel message. The message is the message of reconciliation. The message is the same message Jesus had. He did not count their trespasses against them, but he became a minister of reconciliation and gave us that same ministry of reconciliation, looking past their faults and not making that as a wall that we have to jump over in order to see the image bearer that's been created in God's image that needs to hear the good news. Repent from your sin and come to Jesus. Turn from your fallen, wicked lifestyle and embrace the kingdom of God. If that's not the message, if the message has been clouded because some other message, then this message is for you. And the message is this, have I come to a place where the glory has departed from my life, from my home, from my church, from my family, and I'm completely ignorant of it. I keep going, thinking things are fine. I keep trying to read, getting nothing out of it, but thinking this is pretty much what the whole Christian experience is about. There's no life, there's no fruit, but I'm just gonna keep on going, having my own way on the side, and pretending that I can play this Christian game and things are fine. If the word of the Lord is rare, and there has been no vision, get on your face and beg the Lord to not send tragedy in your life as a way to wake you up. Ask Him today in His mercy to end the famine. To speak once again. How do you start hearing God clearly? You ask Him to open your ears look, this isn't magic. This isn't hard work. There's not a 10-step program that I need to send you away with to work on. Here's the only thing you need. Get on your face and pray. Now let's pray.